Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I was at the Stanley Hotel. Wow, Kristen's not a bad artist. I didn't know she could draw. Fellow human beings on a wonderful planet we call Earth. Jeremy Corbell and, and George Knapp present this as this is genuine military released footage. He claimed that he saw a UFO approaching the space station. I watched the sequel recently and that was a mistake. 22. This is Quark, a Buck Henry show about garbage men in space. I wouldn't worry about that. You're on so many lists now and it, it's too many for them to track. If you are feeling suicidal, thinking about hurting yourself, or concerned that someone you know may be in danger of hurting himself or herself, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK, 1-800-273-8255. It is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and is staffed by certified crisis response professionals. Astonishing Legends would like to thank Mint Mobile, Wild Grain, Squarespace, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Some stories are so bizarre that the details seem unbelievable when you first discover them. Your mind runs through the range of possibilities that generally start with, this is made up, or a hoax. But shortly after that, two words creep from the dark background of your consciousness into the warm light at the forefront of your mind. What if? What if some or any part of this really happened? Tonight, in this part one of a two-part series on this astonishing legend, we'll explore a mysterious phenomenon that took place in the small village of Saurichina, Bulgaria in 1990. It all started with a dream a local man had. In this dream, he was contacted by famous historical figures from Bulgaria's past who told him that not only was he descended from a long-ago czar named Samuil, but that a great treasure of Samuils could be found right in his native village of Sarichina. You would think that sort of lead might not go far. But on December 6, 1990, the Bulgarian military arrived to search for this treasure, whatever it may be. The Tsarichina villagers had no idea what was happening, only that the military showed up, put up a fence, brought in guards with Kalishnikovs, and began digging, chasing away any prying eyes. During the work being done, stories began to leak out of a strange cave spiraling downward. Was the treasure really a literal treasure, or was it something far more important to humanity? The digging continued night and day for over two years. During that time, one of three psychics involved resigned from the project and shortly thereafter committed suicide by jumping off a 10-story building. Her father, also involved, was found dead beneath a bridge in the city of Sofia four years later under mysterious circumstances. Another psychic working as a point person on the case received instructions telepathically that told her only officers can dig. According to local legend, the soldiers involved in the work began to experience highly unusual things in and around the area of excavation, including lights that passed through them as they attempted to retreat to the surface. There are rumors that a firefight broke out in the depths, leaving two men dead. As if the story couldn't be any stranger, one of the psychics consulted was the world-famous blind clairvoyant Baba Vanga. At one point, she warned them to stop digging. That was no treasure they were about to disturb, but something that wanted to be left alone. 
16 million levs, Bulgarian currency, were spent on the excavation, only for it to be abruptly halted after two years and the entrance to the hole filled with concrete. Theories about what happened in Zarichina run the gamut from alien artifacts to secret government experiments and even supernatural forces. Why is it still classified by the Bulgarian government? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is listener Nikolai and Forrest Burgess. If you want to live, no pictures. A young Bulgarian officer guarding the site to journalist Dimitar Stotkov, who first broke the story of the dig. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series, Entombed in Tsarichina. We're back. That we are. Uh, is there anything else? Uh, no, it's, it's, there's no news right now. I'm really, really falling down on the job with the merch. Well, I, I need to fix that. I just want people to know I'm actually going to bring somebody in to deal with that uh-huh. who was amazing and she wanted to do it, but her day job was too much. And so now the store is it's languishing a bit, but uh, we're going to we have big plans for <laughs> some new stuff in there. So I, I just need to make some phone calls. That's all. Well, OK, don't beat yourself up. People will wait. Oh, wait, there is one other important announcement. Forrest and I will both be attending Monster Fest on June 3rd, 2023 at the W. Tree by Hilton in downtown Canton, Ohio. This will be a full day event with vendors, artists, and guest speakers. We'll actually be there doing a live podcast recording too. And I think the Double Tree may have already filled up, so they wanted us to share that there's an overflow hotel, the Embassy Suites by Hilton at the Akron Canton Airport. This is in Ohio, folks. Their phone number is 330-305-0500. If you call them, maybe ask if they have a, a block of rooms or some rooms for Monster Fest. But either way, tickets are available now at the Small Town Monsters website and Facebook event page. There will also be tickets at the door. It's family-friendly, and children under 12 will be admitted for free. They are also premiering a new Small Town Monsters film the night before at the Canton Palace Theater, and yes, we will be there too. Tickets will be available for that through the theater's website. So check that out, folks. Uh, We'll have links in the show notes. Yes, and we're really looking forward to this one, as not only are we going to be there, but so are our dear friends Richard Haddam and Jim Harold. It should be a blast. Yes. And uh, I guess that's it then. So to the delight of many of our listeners, let's get right to the story. Let's do it. Man, this story is crazy. Let's start with how this story came to us. Mm -hmm. Credit to our friend Nikolai, who's a listener. He emailed us the story way back in January of 2022. That's not that way back for us, really. I know. (laughs) It's for us. That's like, it's a couple episodes ago. I thought it was going to be at least two or three or four or five years ago. (laughs) Yeah. There's some people that we're still going to write back a year from Mm -hmm. now that wrote in four years ago, but I did. I took it and I threw it in our story folder. For whatever reason, when we were looking for something to do next, I I always like to think someday we'll have it all planned out for the whole Mm. rest of the year. But a lot of times, even if we have something in mind, it's like, ah, we got to change it up. Let's do something. Let's dig through the folders and see what we can find. It's like a DJ set. You don't stick to it. I mean, you just got to read the crowd. You got to feel the vibe. And sometimes, uh, well, actually, we're having one coming up that... I'm pretty excited about, and it just happened because it was offered to us as an opportunity 
to talk to yeah. somebody very special. It's like, well, yeah, we got to do that. And uh, yeah. you, you don't say like, hey, come back in a year. Right. No, right. you got to grab it when it's hot. <laughs> And in this case, we try to, uh, this is all artisanally crafted. It's curated. It's DJed. And oh, in this no, case, we can't so, use curated uh, anymore. I think curated has been canceled for overuse. Well, I, let's hope not because I think that's what we're doing here. But the idea is that we try to space it out because we know that we offer and delve into a broad range of different topics. And, uh, you know, people have different tastes. Yeah. Uh, when you mention this, like, yeah, this is hitting all the cylinders here. There's some mystery. There's some truth. There's a lot of weird and wackiness going on, and that's why it jumped out at me. And uh, before we go any further, I want to I want to play this message that uh, Nikolai yeah. uh, sent in to us about when he when he first emailed this. Hi guys, Nikolai here. Thank you very much for covering the topic. Since the first time I listened to your show, I hope that I can get in touch with you and propose a topic. So this is like a dream come true. I want to say thank you very much for your time and wish you all the best. Greetings from Bulgaria. And stay awesome. This is so intriguing. Now, on paper, you think, great, another Mel's hole. That's not what this is at all. <laughs> That's not what this is at all. Wait, how many holes have we done? There's uh, Huska Castle. Huska Castle, Huska. yeah, Huska, yeah. Huska, House of uh, Huska. The Hell Hole. Yeah, that was a long time ago, though. We've also done Kincaid's Cave. Yeah, that's not really a hole. Well, no, no, this one remind. <laughs> there's some parallels here. That's true. I think you've forgotten, my friend, because I know people think, well, that's a Joseph Mulhattan tall tale, and he, he uh, just made some uh, newspaper money on selling that story, but there's a lot more to it, and I'm not going to suggest people go back and listen to it, because we were that was our early days, uh, but yeah. there's more to it than just a hole in the ground, and when you go to look at it, it's the same things that are found. I'll wait for that, because like I said, I'm just now realizing that there are some parallels. If you take that story to be something uh, there with it because what's at the end of uh, the discovery is that it's mind-blowing uh, and it leads to uh, question our reality and existence and the history of humankind. There's something about the depths of the earth, the depths of the sea, the depths of Lake Baikal, nether regions and marginal places. There's weird stuff under there. I just want to add though that the thing's different about this because you do talk about Kincaid's cave. Well, that's in the side of a cliff. Mm -hmm. Mel's hole is bottomless. This one's not, this is not about a bottomless pit. Well, However, we this, don't know. I know a little bit because yeah. we've been, we've done some research, but this one does have lots of ingredients of mm. what makes a great astonishing legend. Let, let me list <laughs> Wait, wait here. a second. Are you talking about corkboard, post-its in Red Yard, and then uh, old newspaper clippings? And yeah, yeah. That's where we, we got to go. This is, we're going into it right. Listen to all this stuff that plays into this. Okay. One. This is it. So first of all, it's a mystery. That's an mm -hmm. easy one. There's also military secrecy. Yep. It's secret to this day, still classified now. There's weird rumors. There's a wild story about it. It mm -hmm. takes place in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. There was a huge amount of money spent on it, millions. Ah, that also is connecting to, what else do we call it? The money pit. Oak That's right. Island. That's right. And that there there's also are parallels. Par yes, there are. This might be more about the philosophical thematic implications that it's like when you look at Oak Island, the way those things are arranged is that there's some spirituality to it in the way it was designed and the archetypical meaning of it, because then it gets into uh, Enoch's uh, hole of knowledge and the different layers and what the chambers mean and the symbolism that goes with it. So anyway, yeah, it's got all that, but uh, it did cost a lot of money back then. <laughs> 
<laughs> like just the, 16 million levs, which I think today that would be about $9 million US. I'm not sure what the value yeah. of the dollar or the lev was in, in 1990 when this took place, but right. it, this is a lot of money going in a hole. We also have psychics, including mm-hmm. Baba Vanga, which you might be like, I don't recognize that. I don't know what that is. But if you're of a certain age, you see her face, you're going to recognize her. She was an iconic presence in the world of sort of strange clairvoyance that were making the scene back during this time period and in the decades leading mm-hmm. up to it. She's called the uh, Nostradamus of the Balkans, actually. Yeah, she was yeah. a big deal. It is thought to have an 80% success rate in her predictions, although I couldn't find any statistical hard evidence of that. There are a lot of folks in that part of the world that believed very much in her right. uh, her ability to see the future. It's all murky as if you want to try and nail it all down into statistics and what we've researched before and have talked with psychics about is that uh, generally it's considered anything above 80%, you know, your best psychics are about in that range. Nobody's 100%, which I know we all want to prove that it's a, a repeatable phenomenon that happens, but you're just not going to get that because that would be frightening. If everything I say actually comes true, imagine that person to be hounded because everybody, yeah, we'd be breaking down that door, trying to figure out like, well, what's going to happen to me? That's what everybody wants to know. What's going to happen to the world? So I think by, let's say, cosmic grand design that you're not going to get anything past 80%. So that's pretty good. But I was going to say the other Baba that a lot of our audience is familiar with is Baba Yaga. That whole legend there, which is a lot of fun, a whole lot of scary, but Baba means grandmother. And Baba Yaya, I think she rides around in a flying pestle, like a mortar and, she has uh, a mortar and pestle, I think. So. <laughs> well, Baba, there's the there's the uh, the cabin that is uh, propped up and uh, ambulatory on one giant like chicken leg. Yeah. And then apparently you go inside and it is that, uh, what I love too, the visual imagery of it, it's huge on the inside, yes. small on the outside, like a lot of UFOs and uh, things you'll find on Doctor Who. And I think what happens with a lot of psychic predictions, especially famous ones, is that four or five statements will be made about a specific subject and people will say, well, two of those or three of those came true, but the other four or five, that didn't, so we're not counting that. And there's your 20% out of the 80% uh, that is not true, but it's hard to say what really is happening because it's inscrutable. It's You can't investigate it because it's uh, predictions or descriptions about things that we have no way of verifying. But in this case, we do know that this is a real place. These are real people. Well, that's not all. This also has clandestine removal of something at night. There's a history of that. Was it just dirt being removed? Uh, We don't know. There's UFO sightings, which the villagers themselves saw. Yeah. There are threats to journalists. There are witness accounts that seem to disappear. The witnesses themselves kind of vanishing. Mm -hmm. There might be aliens. There's telepathic (laughs) messages. There's cryptic writing in an unknown language. Force fields. What I like to call matrix problems. Fiddling with reality. Yeah, meddling Uh with reality. And then uh, disappearing records of events, including notebooks and photographs, all gone. Just uh, vanished. Or as one article I read said, cold. Mm Mm-hmm. 
there's a lot going into this. It's time to get into the main story. We do want to touch on what our sources are. Most of this comes from scouring the internet, mm-hmm. that not just in the United States, but also in Bulgaria. Yep. And we consulted with Nikolai on some pronunciation. So save the emails. We're going to do the best <laughs> we can here. Well, we're going to try our best. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing we want to point out is that these Bulgarian sources can lead to some translation yeah. issues. There were a few things that I had to read anyway that I had to get like 10, 15 pages into something. Right. And then on the 15th page, I suddenly understood what they were trying to say on the second page. Uh, and it, because yeah. the translation was had, so wonky. So that's uh, true. And what you'll find is that at least a lot of uh, Western European and uh, American sources who've repackaged the story. I think are going off of just computer translation and just regurgitating it. So you have to sift through a lot of it to find the the wheat and the chaff and what's chaff and and what's just like I said, perhaps a a bad logic translation. Like as Scott said, you've got to read through a lot of it and then go back and kind of piece together what's actually happening here and what's the chronology of all this. That was the other thing. Talk about cold. This starts off in December when there's snow and a lot of cold, and you're going to go digging now, but you can't wait for the spring and then into the summer. So I hats off to these folks. They're very hardy and decided that this thing is important enough to start right away. So this thing just takes off like a rocket. And, And here's the other thing, as you'll hear, once you hear about the proposal of this, you'll get excited, much as the same people, anybody who's heard uh, of Oak Island, when you start discovering things, yeah, I want to know more about this. Keep digging. Yeah, exactly. Which is why we're covering it on our show, because that's that's (laughs) the kind of stuff we love to talk about. Uh, Well, we will be listing, as we always do, all of our sources in the show notes and on the webpage for this episode, but we'll try to loosely point out where they come from as we go along. So, folks, when you hear this story, you might think this is all made up. Mm -hmm. You listen to us cover the infamous coast-to-coast story of Mel's Hole, or maybe you did. If you're new to the show, you can go back and listen to that one. It's a little bit sillier, but it's still pretty (laughs) intriguing. That was just one guy (laughs) calling in and telling an unverifiable story. Is this another one like that? No. No. This is entirely different. And when I say new, envision like that Bugs Bunny meme where he goes, new, and his lips come out. I love that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) This is entirely different. There is hard proof that something happened here. And that hard proof is thanks to an intrepid Bulgarian journalist named Dimitri Statkov and his photographers, Alexander Manzov and Gorgi Svetkov-Gushori. At the time, they were working for a paper in Bulgaria called Nightwork. Great title. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty cool idea, actually. As near as we can tell via translation, I yeah. think it was actually published at night. Yeah. Which is a, <laughs> it's a great right. idea, because at one point he's talking in a story about how this all went down, and editions essentially going out at midnight, unless, again, yeah. I'm misunderstanding the translation, but it seemed like a really cool idea. No, it's totally a coal shack, the night stock. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. a reporting it's of strange things that, uh, you know, that get stranger and stranger. It's not the Inquirer or uh, Weekly World News, Bat Boy, all that kind of stuff. It's a serious paper. That's right. And the point is, without Statkoff's reporting, there might be no record of what took place at Zarashina from late 1990 to 92. With it, we have detailed observations and photographs. Mm-hmm. This happened, or some form of it did. Right. Listen to how Dmitry Stodkov stumbled across the story that went globally viral when the internet was still in its infancy. This excerpt is from a November 2018 article in the Bulgarian paper Blitz entitled The Story of the Mystical Zarichina Hole, told by an eyewitness. 
One evening, as a story editor, I had to figure out what the front of the issue would be. I was a forensics reporter at the time and wondered what I could find that would be worthy of a top story. I knew almost all the heads of the departments of the National Investigation Service, but I came across the investigator, Colonel Risto Mishev. I still call him by Misho, a very open, communicative, and interesting person. He was responsible for major construction accidents, catastrophes, and other miracles. He was going to the parliament in a company car, and he offered to drop me somewhere on the way to talk. As I got into the car and shouted to him, Give me something, some news! He shouts, I have nothing to tell you. If you want something, there's a mystery for me too. I have a villa in the village of Sarichina, Kostinbrotsko. There, the military has been digging around the clock for almost two years. They have fenced off everything from sight with a fence. There are some tents inside they guard with automatics. A chicken couldn't get in there. There's some secret object in there. I don't know what they're doing, but one day, while I was waiting on the road for a handyman to bring me lumber for the cottage with a tractor, I went over to check it out, and a young officer yells at me, Leave! You can't stay here! I tell him I'm a colonel from the General Investigation Department, and he yells at me, I don't care. Leave. It's an order. I have the authority to detain you if you don't obey. I just freaked out. How could some lieutenant command me, a colonel, from the main office? However, I obeyed and left, and inside the fence you could hear the rumbling of machines. The military was doing something there, but there was no one to tell you what, and the people of the village are whispering. Does that intrigue you? Go and dig! I didn't have time to react, but as soon as my editorial duty was done, I left in a car, together with a photographer, Alexander Manzov, to Tsarichina. So, in looking at all of the research and poring over things and figuring out who came to what information first, it does seem a lot like Dmitry Stotkov is yeah. the guy who broke this story. It did go global. Lots of other journalists showed up. Right. Uh, there's a point at which they actually were allowed to tour the site. Right. But I also wanted yeah. to make it clear in reading Stotkov's story in uh, one of the articles that we found at Blitz, he seemed to be a little bit slighted by the fact that a lot of people went and ran with this and they didn't give a nod to him for being uh, the one that uncovered it. Well, you know. of course, yeah, that usually happens. But in one of the more reliable web sources that was given to us by Nikolai is the story in four parts, which essentially are excerpts coming from the book that we're going to discuss is, is the main account here along with some reporting. But as you said earlier, you know, a lot of the official reporting, well, this is top secret, so you're not going to get it. But at the time, let's say a more controlled environment and country uh, that was formerly behind the Iron Curtain. So you're not going to get a lot of stuff that's just offered up. And it's going to be a lot of uh, what's been leaking out from people who were actually there. But it's explained that this was a, a little bit of a media frenzy at the time. As it says here in that translated article, to remember this is all originally in Bulgarian, so it's just uh, Google trying to translate it. The digging in question reached all the way to the plenary hall of the National Assembly. And that means the fully attended and authoritative National Assembly of the country. And so it was known to the national government here. It goes on to say, at a later stage, almost all dailies joined. That means almost all daily news outlets uh, joined in uh, reporting of this. A team of Bulgarian National Television, Afir 2, 
uh, that might be the channel designation here, enter the mysterious tunnel. So TV journalists were in there. As the article goes on to say, a journalistic raid was carried out at the place of the event on the order of the then Deputy Minister of Defense, Nikola Daskalov. So they ordered it to be covered. And that's what I thought, um, what would you need to... I guess, I don't know if it's a defense or whatever, but it's dragging, as the people say, something out into the sunlight as a disinfectant, not as a secret, but you make people know about it. And that's what's going to also kind of protect it. But at the same time, you could be talking about state secrets here. Right. That you don't want out. And so this is an odd thing. I think it's more of a phenomenon or thought to be at this point, but also... You can't just have uh, looky-loos and treasure hunters going in there at night, digging on their own and messing yeah. the place up. But yeah, uh, yeah there's an, another reporter who I, I think we found maybe on LinkedIn. Scott and I are going to look at that a little closer. But the site was visited, it says here, by uh, Mrs. Vasila Georgieva, correspondent for France Press in Sofia. Even two French journalists were there. So it's a little bit of the international or Western European press coming to take a look at it. So it's not like there's one report, and it was Joseph Mulhatton. Sotkoff specifically mentions French reporters showing up and yeah. basically interviewing him and then taking the story and publishing it and not saying <laughs> anything about him and also not talking to anyone else. <laughs> hey, that sounds familiar. Yeah. But it wasn't her, so that's right. I just wanted to make sure. Right. Because if he listens to it, I wanted to make sure that that was a... No, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it, it is hard to find out. Like I said, this whole thing's very foreign to us on so many levels. But again, it's documented. And it wasn't that long ago, I was going to say. You're talking about 1990. Right. And some of these articles are coming out 2018, 2020. So... Yeah. Let's say it's 33 years ago. And I happen to know that because that's... This happened right after my 1990 300ZX was built. <laughs> that I still have. <laughs> it's the, the gauge of everything in your life. Yeah, well, I drove it today. Car, yeah. Come on. It's 33 years oh, old okay. now. I can't hardly believe it. Good for you. It. Hello, everyone. I'm Ray, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Well, let's talk a little bit about Sarichna and the town yeah. before we get into the story itself here. One thing I wanted us to mention is that it's kind of an out-of-the-way place. It's super out-of-the-way. Yeah. It is super out-of-the-way, even though it's in central, essentially, uh, central Bulgaria. Yeah, if you look on the map at Google Earth or Google Maps or whatever, and you look at it, you almost think, I even measured just to make sure, it almost looks like it's the dead center, but it's not quite. If you go due west, it's like 265 miles to the coast. And if you right. go due east, it's like 235. But that's pretty close to the yeah. middle of the country on a latitude there. Exactly. And uh, you are going to talk about how the initial team found the place because that's pretty remarkable in and of itself. We will get into that. So this little village is about a thousand meters or 3,300 feet above sea level. It has four little sections. In 1990, they think there were maybe 80 to 100 residents living there. So that's a small town. Yeah, it's a hamlet. Yeah, it's a hamlet. (laughs) There's actual population designations. But what we learned before uh, getting into trouble talking about that in the UK is that it depends on the country. They have slightly different definitions uh, based on population. But this is a small little, as described earlier, villa, hamlet, village, Everybody knows each other, and so any kind of news like this, everybody's talking about it immediately. It unfortunately doesn't have the most uh, well-developed economy. There's animal husbandry. However, at the time, I don't know if this is still true, it had been suffering from a drought. Yeah. The roads are not 
not very many of them are actually paved. Or have signs. Yeah, or have yeah. signs. Uh, snow closes the area down. According to Colonel Kenev, whose book we'll be sharing some information from, bread mm-hmm. basically came to the town twice a week on Monday and Friday. And while the military was there, they sometimes helped to make sure that got distributed. Yeah. The weekends were more lively because villagers would all assemble. They would come down to the pub there, which is very close to where the hole used to be. And it is essentially mm-hmm. called Restaurant The Hole. Not Sarichina, just the hole. It's right there by the hole. We'll show, we'll be showing our patrons where that restaurant is. It's apparently temporarily closed, according to Google Earth right now. Yeah. But it's a village that wasn't known to most Bulgarians before this happened. After it became much more renowned, and people are still visiting it to this day. You go online and look, there's uh, thousands of pictures from people who've made pilgrimages there to see where the hole was, which is how these things always go. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I get it's a little like Rick Steve saying like, hey, if you want to take time to go see the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it's going to put a dent in your travel logistics just to go see that one thing yeah. and, and act like you're holding your hand up and take the photo. There's not a whole lot of other stuff around there to do. So I also heard that about the, uh, the Taj Mahal. Yeah. Spectacular, beautiful, stunning, just not a lot else around there for uh, the average tourist. So just know that if you're going to go check out the hole. Plus, it's been uh, cemented over. Yeah, and now that's overgrown with grass. Right. And it's behind a fence, but I, I get ahead of myself. Mm. So the sources for this next section that are going to lay out the story of how this all started come from the Google English translation of Colonel Svetko Konov's book, The Phenomenon of Zarichina. A little bit of a disclaimer. Too much happened here in two years to boil it all down here, but there are some mm-hmm. watershed moments that we wanted to share like the outset of the operation and other larger findings of the work. So we're going to do that now. Beyond that, the series of events that take place have a lot of similarities to a few other topics we covered, and we'll be mentioning that here as we go on. Let's get to the beginning of how this all came about, though. It all starts with a dream, a dream that a local villager had. He was a man named Dimitar Kikamenov, and this is different from Dimitar Statkov, the journalist. Right. Kikamenov approached the director general of an organization in Bulgaria known as the Phenomena Association. It had only been formed on November 21st of 1990, so it was scarcely a few days old when this happened. Yeah. The director general at that time was a man named Stamen Stamenov. Kikamenov said that it was family lore within his family that there was a great treasure of the Tsar Samuel in Tsarachina. He then embarrassingly relayed that he had had a shocking dream about it. In this dream, he was approached by famous Bulgarian historical figures. Ivan Vazov, the most prominent writer, poet, playwright, and novelist in Bulgarian history. Vasilevsky, a Bulgarian revolutionary known as the Apostle of Freedom. He founded a movement to liberate Bulgaria from Ottoman rule. Gorgi Sava Rokolsky, another Bulgarian revolutionary and Freemason, again focused on freeing Bulgaria from Ottoman rule. And also Hristo Botev, a revolutionary and a poet, another national hero and close friend of Vasilevsky, with whom he lived with during a period of exile. So these four men, these superstars of Bulgarian history, came to kick a man off in his dream. And Gorgi Rakovsky, in the dream, put his hand on the shoulder of Kikamenov and said, the blood of Tsar Samuel is in your veins. And as his yeah. descendant, you should lead the Bulgarian people to Samuel's treasure. So... <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, no pressure yeah. at all. 
So I want to talk a little bit about Tsar Samuil. He was a Tsar mm-hmm. in the first Bulgarian Empire from the year 997 to the year 1014. And from 977 to 997, he was a general under Roman I of Bulgaria, the second mm-hmm. surviving son of Emperor Peter I of Bulgaria, and co-ruled with him. Samuel struggled to preserve the country's independence from the Byzantine Empire. His rule was characterized by constant warfare against the Byzantines and their equally ambitious ruler, Basil II. So uh, we'll cover a little bit more about this. There's actually a really interesting uh, facial reconstruction of him on the Wikipedia page that's based on his remains. It's not just an artist's depiction. You can actually look and see what this guy looks like, which is pretty impressive for someone that uh, passed away in uh, the year 1014. Yeah, it's was, been a while, been been some time. It was a while back. Yeah. But he's a great leader of uh, Bulgarian history and the fact that he led pretty much very successful military campaigns, kept the country together, and as you know, the mark of a good ruler, as soon as he's gone, died of a heart attack, I believe, the country falls apart. And so yeah. they yeah. needed his leadership for that time. And I just want to make a point here is that you may see some translations saying he was King Samuel, but really he's czar meaning more like emperor of his ancestors and father. The way it's explained to me or the way that I understand it is that a king, you could be king of a little uh, duchy, this <laughs> a little bit of an area. And I like this explanation here, like a regional manager, let's say of a company. Right. And you control that area, that region, but there's a CEO of the company and that's the emperor and they have final say over, it could be many kingdoms. The point being with mentioning all that history as it pertains to this whole is that if anybody's going to have a fortune, he's very likely to have one. And what do you, what do you do? You, you don't put it in the national coffers because (laughs) that those get raided which is maybe why this whole procedure costs 16 million loves. We'll see about that. But in this case, there could very well be a historical treasure, like so many of them throughout history, squirreled away in a secreted location that only a few know about. And at this point, it's been lost. And you know what? That's the other thing I will say, is that as we looked in, uh, was it Coronado's Children, and a lot of treasure books that you and I have come across, Lafitte, so many of these stories and legends about lost treasure involve a paranormal or supernatural aspect where it's been lost, but the location has been told to someone living currently, like, you got to find this. And it was the same thing with Lafitte's treasure. Well, it's like the remote viewers say, what, what is it? The, the more something is a secret, the more it stands out in psychic space. Yeah, right? that was Pat Price, uh, a yeah. former uh, renowned, really gifted psychic and former commissioner, I think, of the Burbank Police, somewhere down here in Southern California, one of these uh, small towns here. But he's, yeah, he said, uh, how is this possible when something is supposed to be very top secret? He says, the more you try to hide something, the more it shines in psychic space. I love that quote. I love that. And that guy was, without a doubt, had a gift. No matter what you think about anything, it, it was uncanny what he was capable of. God rest his soul. That was scientifically charted, uh, at least uh, tracked. And again, no one's 100%, but I would guess when you meet somebody personally that's 80% and they start telling you things about your own life that come true, it makes an impression. So yeah. in this case, though, what you have here is a possibly buried historical treasure. So that alone is worth looking up. And as we mentioned, Bulgaria, well, yes, there was a lot of corruption going on at the time, but they're struggling with their finances. This would be a huge boon to the place, not only for the government, but 
as uh, the colonel here uh, who wrote this book, as he said, uh, this should be a government military operation because it cannot be trusted to the selflessness of any individuals because... Right. We're in, we're in a national pride zone here. National pride and, yeah. you know, as we always know, it's... <laughs> It's treasure of the Sierra Madre. People get inflamed. They all want the prize for themselves, and it just turns into a lot of murder. Well, and there's another really critical fact, which I, you know, I had in our outline a little bit later down here, but might as well point it out now. This is just a few months after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That's and right. Communism is collapsing, and a lot of the folks involved in what's happening here are former members of the communist regime, and they're trying to figure out what their place is in the upcoming future for Bulgaria. Yeah. So there's a lot going on there. And here's the other thing, though, that I want to say, talking about squirreling away Sam Will's treasure Mm -hmm. somewhere in a remote location. There's one problem with that, is the fact is that the town is called Zarichina. It's got Tsar right in the name. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the colonel had said in his book, he was like, I couldn't really figure out what this meant. He said the closest he came back to was... um, Sarajevo, kind of like Sarajevo, but Sarajevo. Yeah. And it had something to do with hills and that sort of thing. But I don't think he could make a clear connection to it historically, at least at this back in the 1990s, no. as to what it meant. But it also could pertain to the czar, Samuel, but also his father, the czar. So it's right. it's big czar, little czar is kind right. of a That's rough right. interpretation. Too, right. Yeah. And so yeah. the father had liked to visit this place, and then the son, uh, Samuel, has visited the place. So it's like, you know, father king, son king. Oh, so maybe it's a little retreat. Also still, good yeah. place to bury. I mean, if you're going to go looking for something, go to the vacation well. cottage, <laughs> which is also apparently that other right. guy. He was like, I have a villa there. Yeah. I don't know. They've been digging for two years. You want yeah. a story? Go check that yeah. out. Or I guess, you you know, this is the other thing that's uh, more fanciful fiction, or maybe not, is that like a national treasure, you hide it in a very obvious place just below, you know, the the major cathedral or something, because then people don't think to ask and the place is not very accessible. But in this case, it's like, look, this is a pretty out of the way little hamlet. And you could be doing something in, well, I mean, I I can't even imagine what it was like, uh, even more rural and more uh, separated back in Sam Wheel's day, and you're talking about the the 900s to 1000s. So yeah, back then you could get away with uh, doing something on an administrative state level, let's say, and not many people knowing about it. Right. right. But it's like with any other treasure, what good is it if nobody remembers it's buried or where it's at? Well, circling back to kick him in off in his Mm -hmm. dream, he maintained that, you know, because he lived in the village, he was from the village, every time he walked past the site where the digging was occurring, he would hear a voice in his head yeah. that would say to him in a very loud way, look, there's something very important here, right here. So after he shares the, his dream with the leader of the newly formed paranormal group, they get together to set up a meeting between Kikamanov and a psychic and bioenergy therapist named Dmitry Sirikov, right. a major from the Bulgarian military science department and a psychic who was also a radio operator in the National Intelligence Service named Dora Petrova. Okay, I, just a quick aside here, I want to remind folks is that once we start mentioning psychics and yes. bioenergy therapists and people who are energy workers, I know a lot of people's eyes start to roll backwards. But as we've said many times before, Eastern Bloc countries like the Soviets take this stuff seriously. And you right. could say like, well, come on, how could they? This is all crazy baloney. Well, 
you judge them by their actions and what they've done. And here, That's they right. don't think it's a lot of baloney. They think there's something to it. There's also some portions of this story and these categories in the semantics that are lost in translation. Right. In some cases, you look at the translations of this information, and these people are referred to as psychics. In other cases, they're referred to as remote viewers, which I know for some well, for some reason, <laughs> the term remote viewer triggers a bunch of our audience. Oh, it certainly does. But also, uh, I've heard, uh, I read the, the term dowser, which, yes. again, it's like, there's different levels people are willing to buy. If you hire a dowser, any... Here's the thing. It's easier to swallow. It doesn't stick going down when somebody you hire comes out uh, with a water witch and, and he actually finds a, a place for you to dig your well and it worked. Well, yeah. it's like I always say, it's very hard to argue with success. Hey, well, you didn't know where to look. There's no scientific devices that'll help you out, but this guy did or whoever is doing the dowsing. In this case, a woman came along on the first trip just to see what was there. So it's like, and I think that is the approach I would say with Eastern Bloc Slavic countries where they're like, hey, this person provided results, success. So right. why get up all in your head? Are they trying to exploit somebody for some gain? We asked them to do this. They did it. Case closed. And the gentleman involved in this, Sirikov, once he heard the story, he informed the team that he had had a similar dream. I mean, of course, he could just be saying, hey, I, I had the same dream he had. But he said that he had the same dream with yeah. the historical <laughs> figures coming and saying this information was taking place. Now, it's not clear, again, lost in translation, whether he's saying that he right. dreamt that that happened to kick him in off or he's saying it happened to him. I think he actually dreamt that it happened to kick him in off or that he had similar information. So that's the first thing that he says when they had this meeting. Mm -hmm. Kikaminov even drew a picture of where this was. We'll have that on a, on the episode page for this. Now, General Kanov reported all of this to his chief ministry of defense, Colonel Professor Naplatinov, whose daughter, Marina, would later also become a psychic involved in the story. I know, I know mm -hmm. there's a lot of psychics. Again, I want to say, <laughs> I'm not even positive psychic's the word that they want to put on this, but that's uh, what, you know, it's, again, it's semantics. Yeah. When you think about the bad words that you can say, in Britain that you can't say in the U.S. and the other way around. <laughs> Just think about how the words mean different things in different places. They have different baskets of information associated with them. You can say intuitive, let's say, or uh, right. gut feeler. You know, somebody who's uh, gets hunches and they turn out to be mostly right. And with this story, these are all high-ranking government military officials in the highest echelons of Bulgarian government. And case in point here, you have Colonel Professor Naplanitov who is, uh, what has he got? He's uh, the Minister of Defense, whose daughter is able to come up with this, uh, let's just say psychic. Let's just, just go with this for right now. Let's just go. We'll <laughs> go with psychic. Okay. Also, we're, by the way, we know that we're going to be saying all these names right. uh, three different ways or four exactly. each by the end of the show. We already know that, so no one needs to tell us. No, all please, right, so please just roll with that. After this meeting... Yeah. After this meeting, a team of six people decides they're going to go up there and check this out. This includes Kanev. Mm -hmm. They packed up and headed for Sarachina. None of them had ever heard of it, according to Kanev. So they tried to plan out a route. They had maps. This is before everyone had GPSs and iPhones. Right. So they, they got their maps out and figured out where they're going. They got close. They weren't really sure how to get to the last part of the route. Marina Nablatanova, the daughter of the Minister of Defense that we were just talking about, and herself a psychic, actually mm -hmm. told them, when and where to turn as they drove further into the countryside. Yeah. 
there was a long series of different forked dirt roads with no signage. Right. And she was telling them which fork to take every time yeah. they went somewhere. At one point, even saying, no, wait, back up, yeah, go back, back up. there and turn. Right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> well, first of all, they thought they're going to take a helicopter there. And yes. Oh, the, that's right. The pilots yeah, the, refused to go up. Right. So the weather, the weather turned really bad. Think about this. This is uh, uh, December. 1990. Right, 1990. And they got uh, they got some bad weather reports. They didn't want to fly. And they realized, like, well, look, these are military men. They just said, like, yeah, you're right. Well, let's take a micro bus there. And so, so what they did is that's right. they just took a micro bus. They all piled in. And as it was described, spirits were high going there and back. There was singing and joking and they all felt really good about it, but they relied on her. Well, they had a map printout, but they didn't rely on her. They said, yeah, there's no signs here. So there's a, we know that the road's underneath the snow. Which way to go? And right. she would tell them, take this turn. You know, there's a lot of forks in the road. I'm not getting ahead of myself here, but I think it was also a bit of a test for this team. Yeah, yeah. I got that yeah. sense, too, of like whatever, let's say, force is leading these people there. And you and I are going to talk about competing forces, perhaps. Whatever is leading this team here for the initial discovery, I think is leading them, but it's also a test to see, is their metal up to it? Can right. they find this place? What will they do? Can they handle this? Will they do the right thing by the right. spirits of Bulgaria? Yeah, oh, I like that. I like that. It's very romantic. Well, there is a lot of national romance yeah. and, and legend and lore about all this, including yeah. real history. This is not just, uh, this is not Baba Yaga. No, it's just, that's more folklore. Yeah. These are real people, historical people. And right. yeah, he has the dream, like the Star Trek, right? It's like, choose your, uh, your mentors. And it's like, now Abe Lincoln's showing up. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> I will help you as much as I can, Captain Kirk. But uh, you're, you're doing all the fighting and the uh, the double fist, uh, you know, knocking of people down. In all seriousness, this is something that is rooted in Bulgarian pride and national history, as we've just said. So there's a weird part of this that, to me, gives it a little more authenticity. And here's another thing that's interesting in, in referring to the missing signs. When we were talking about um, Dmitry Statkov, the journalist who uh, kind of broke the story initially, mm -hmm. he thought that a bunch of the signs had been taken down by the military after the operation started. Oh, but when right. you read General Konev's account of it, he was saying there were no signs to start with. The, the closest one to the village was three and a half kilometers, right, I guess, right. which uh, Statkov did photograph. He has a picture of that yeah. sign. But getting closer and closer, you need to know where you're going or yeah. you're not going to and or be a psychic to find it. Once they found the village, they reported all this back to the commander of the Bulgarian ground forces at the time, General Radnyu Minchev. Now, keep in mind, the Berlin Wall had fallen less than a year before this, and Minchev was a communist general right. trying to find his place in a new world order. That phrase, by the way, was popularized by President George H.W. Bush at the end of the Cold mm -hmm. War contemporaneously with these events, actually just a little bit later in March of 1991, right in the middle of all this. Yeah. The point is, all that's happening at the same time, the fall of communism. General Minchev wanted to dig. That was his decision. Right. So on the morning of December 6th, 1990, equipment was moved into place, including a radio relay area. And if we're not mistaken here at Astonishing yeah. Legends, you can still see the remains of a radio tower at the site today. I saw it. Uh, I've seen pictures of it on uh, Google Maps and Google Earth. Probably running a number station. Well, when I saw it, I didn't know what the, I was like, well, that looks like a radio tower. It's right. clearly abandoned. But I didn't put two and two together until I realized where the hole was, which we figured out. Yeah. 
and it was right next to it. And it's like, why else would that be up there in the middle of this village? Like you said, a number station, but it's a tiny little tower. It's not very right, tall, but right. their elevation's good, so you wouldn't need a huge tower. So. Well, as you said, it's a relay right. station to headquarters, so they just have right. to bounce the signal to another uh, repeater to get right. it to the HQ. Yeah. There were rumors that maintained in the area, in addition to the treasure, there was a map buried with it with locations mm-hmm. of other treasures of similar value all over Bulgaria. Another big selling point, right. It wasn't just one thing. They seem to be thinking, is this a treasure? There, There's mention of it being a golden treasure, but there's the other idea of it's kind of like the Holy Grail being a little wooden well, cup. It's like, it might not be that kind of treasure. It might be a <laughs> different kind of treasure. Well, and that's the thing to remember with right. these things, whether you're looking at Oak Island yeah. or the search for the Holy Grail or whatever else, it's not always the bright, shiny thing that you think you want to have. Sometimes it's something that might be a key to the history of humanity itself. Well, two things quickly that come to my mind. Yes, you're right. It could be like Oak Island. It's a, it's not a big treasure chest Full of gold doubloons. Well, certainly uh, that figures into the story where maybe somebody did find some Spanish uh, gold coinage. Remember the uh, the gentleman who uh, suddenly had uh, money and then suddenly took off oh, yeah. with his family? It's like, see ya. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that could be part of it. But the other theory is that this could be... Uh, well, one one theory is uh, Shakespeare's works, the first folios, perhaps. There was one rumor it was the secret of the Mona Lisa. Who was she? Uh, it could be that, but it's something of cultural and, uh, well, it, as it was uh, told them by uh, spiritual messaging that it would affect humanity globally. So it was something important to the the whole earth about uh, what no, are... That's probably not the Mona Lisa, the secret of the Mona Lisa. I mean, uh, well, you know. n- well, listen. I mean, people want to know, hey, but I don't know if it ranks with like, well, global humanity. Hey, listen, if you're Dan Brown, then the, the, <laughs> the Last Supper... That's more like a bunch of people going, huh, that's interesting. Anyway, <laughs> well, as it's leading to, it's the it leads to one of the biggest questions we have out there: Who are we, and where did we come from? Yeah, now put that on the back burner for right now. The other thing I was going to say is we talk about uh, the other appeal of this. It's not just one cache that they might have found; is that they were getting the impression that there could be a network of treasures. And what does that remind you of, Scott? Knights of the Golden Circle a network of caches spread throughout the country done in the 10th century by Samuel and perhaps his predecessors, but also it needs to be found. It's time. That's why you can't keep a good treasure down. It's going to, like a sliver, it's going to work its way out. Did you mean splinter just then? Yeah. You said sliver. Yeah. That's what we called it, sliver. Are you serious? Yeah, sliver. In the Pacific Northwest? (laughs) Well, you could have a, a splinter when a or a sliver. a piece of wood is stuck in your sliver. finger, you call it a sliver? Yeah. No way. I've never heard that in my life. Well, there you go. You could there. There's your uh, treasure of knowledge. Yes, uh, I love be... it. Leave it in. Sliver. I thought it was a splinter. I, it, for me, Sliver it, was a weird movie that came out in the 90s, I think, speaking of the 90s or maybe uh, the early 2000s. No, but the <laughs> idea, though, is that uh, I've heard it both ways. And, and that's why I'm saying, and people getting upset about, uh, no, no, we say it here, this way. It's like... Really? How long have you been living there? 20 years? Well, that's nothing. That's nice. I grew up there. Got it. A sliver works its way out. Whatever it is, it it pushes its way out. In the case of treasure, we were going to talk about that a little bit more and get back to kind of the ideas of Lafitte in that there are a lot of ghost stories tied with buried treasure and uh, the barrier either keeping people away or letting them know about it. The right people have to come and find it. It can't be Alice and Duty from Raiders number three. 
it can't be in the wrong hands because what will happen is that uh, powerful forces will burn your logo off the side of the crate yeah. or make sure that uh, the right people come and find this. And so that's what they're thinking. I'm, I'm not, this is actually not really a tangent. This is part of the story in that these are the right people that have come along now to find this yeah. perhaps treasure. And there are more if they find this one. And as I said, a feeling of passing the test, you find this one, there's more around. It's written on a map too. You don't have to look that hard. If you find the first one, you'll get a map to the other ones. But what they're seeing here, like with the, well, like I said, with the roadmap, they don't need the map. They're guided. And here they finally come across a sign saying, uh, Sarichana village, a few kilometers away. And that's how they know they're on the right track. All this guessing here and there where they could easily get turned around and lost and stuck in the snow. They made it. That's right. So initially, the code name for this excavation was called Cable because they accidentally cut a cable when they first started <laughs> <Right>. digging. <laughs> that was their first code name for it, apparently. I don't know if anyone scooped us on that. I like to find the weird facts. A lot of people mm -hmm. have covered this story, so I like to find That's the weird true. facts. That I wonder if anybody else had that. They probably did. There's some good folks out there now doing the doing the deep dives. Mm. But uh, I, I think it was a telephone cable or something. But by 4 o'clock on the first day, they had created a 50-foot opening about 8 feet deep, and they had found nothing interesting. It was kind of more of a, mm -hmm. a trench. So they stopped. And they went, at this point, to consult the four psychics associated with right. the project, three of whom were on site. Again, that's Marina Naplatanova, the colonel's daughter, Dimitar Serdikov, and Dora Seneva Petrova. Mm -hmm. One of the psychics, who is one of the key figures in this story, was back at their headquarters, and that was Elisaveta Loganova, or Ellie. She becomes the most prominent psychic associated with the initial team, and she is what I, I think becomes the primary guide and the primary communicator with something intelligent mm -hmm. that seems to be sending messages and telling them what to do. Mm -hmm. And the psychics told the team, are you ready for this, Forrest? This is where you say your line. <laughs> oh, Indiana you've Jones. made a note for me to, yes, yes, to yes. jump in here. Okay. Indy, they're digging in the wrong place. That's right. I That's am the sultan of the sea. There's, <laughs> you don't have yeah, to there's do gonna the be next a, scene, No, I know. Yeah. There's going to be, a, <laughs> hopefully that'll be the last of the Indiana Jones uh, references, but yes. I'm making no promises. <laughs> well, so it turns out the psychic said they needed to move 100 meters or 330 feet to the east. That's strangely almost the exact spot that Dimitar Sirikov right. had slipped and fallen in the snow uh -huh. on the first day they surveyed the site which was the day before, something they had all laughed about. They actually had a moment at that spot, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Now the psychics are saying, you know what? This is where you need to go. And it's like, well, wouldn't you know it? This is where he fell down yesterday. Look, we get this. There's no, uh, we're, yeah. it's, it's all <laughs> speculation <laughs> and, and this and that with this, but it's easy to see this being a fool's errand, uh, something of folly because they're starting to believe their own uh, baloney, their own borscht here thinking that, well, we're getting these signs. This is happening. Something's leading us to this. And and certainly, I think that can happen a lot, too, is that you read into signs that say, dig here, the X marks the spot, and you find a little something, and that keeps you going. Yeah. But just hang with us, folks, because it gets bigger and weirder. Hi, I'm Melissa. And when I'm not investigating rainbow portals out in Black Forest... I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show. So Kenneth points out in his book, Colonel Kenneth, that the roads where they wind up digging actually form a cross, and they do, 
Again, visit our webpage for the episode to see oh. the aerial view of the location. Or again, if you're a member of patreon.com slash astonishing legends, we're going to go over this live on video on the next junk drawer sometime in the next week or two. But when you see it from the air, there's a confluence of roads that do make a, a kind of cross here where they wind up digging, which, of course, brought me right back to Oak Island right. and um, also to the Triangle at Skinwalker Ranch. And there's some parallels mm-hmm. between all these stories. And it, 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 talk about everything is connected. There's so much that happens in this story that is similar yeah. to Skinwalker Ranch, to Oak Island, right. to... The vertical plane, as we're going to find out here in a little bit, and also to Siren Call, the Hungry Ghost. Right. There are spiritual and supernatural and paranormal light motifs going on here. And that, like I said, it's not exactly the same things happening, but they certainly rhyme. It's like the rule of threes is that there are recognizable patterns, and maybe we as humans just place... uh, meaning into this but what we'll see here is like all of our legends and lore is that there are themes that keep getting repeated and it's no different with this treasure story well colonel kenyef points out in his book that something unseen is guiding them he adds that two of the psychics on their team are a form of remote viewers as i said earlier who can communicate with intelligent unseen entities. Look, those are their words, not ours, folks. So, yeah, those are their yeah. words. And, and Take a shot of vodka if you like, but don't blame us for it. So as these folks reported back to General Menchev at the Ministry of Defense on their inauspicious beginning of digging in the wrong place, the guiding psychic, Elisa Teva, or Eli Loginova, drew a sketch, which you can see in the photo mm-hmm. gallery on our webpage for this episode. It's some kind of Pythagorean-looking thing mm. with a jagged king's crown at the bottom of it. It's right. very interesting. Mm-hmm. Kind of says they didn't really understand it. On top of that, Laginova wrote the following under the sketch. Now, keep in mind, our translation is not 100% on the mark here, but this was under this drawing, which, again, looks like a... It's very geometrically shaped. It looks like a series of boxes connected at their corners. And then there's a strange, almost king's crown shape down at the bottom. She wrote, This is a dangerous game of chess, and the last move is the most important. This is your move. This is the place where you should dig. This will be the salvation of greater Bulgaria. This will save your country from destruction, from the doom of decay, from its crystal fragility. It will become as strong as steel, as strong and powerful as it was 1,350 years ago, Mm -hmm. which I guess historians took issue with that. They were like, we don't know really that... (laughs) (laughs) But that's what she wrote. That's what she wrote there. You're pulling the thread on the the, the hand in the can scenario from uh, the Larry Sanders show. You're arguing that the brim should come out first out of the foam can uh, through (laughs) the foam hat. I think part of the fool's errand is trying to really gauge this and nail this down. And I think as one of the themes as well, there is uh, there are things that are not right. And I don't know why they aren't if the sources, let's say, the ethereal sources think they're right, if they're wrong on purpose or there's a trick being played here or what the reality is. But yeah, not everything is is coming through right. It's kind of like with Philip, you know, the conjured Philip in that they purposely, and I thought it was a clever idea, they purposely made up a fake history, but with real places, but they could track it. It's like, is Philip coming through responding to knocks about false places? Same thing with Siren Call. Is uh, these places that you mentioned, you're not exactly right for something that's supposed to be all-seeing, omniscient, 
these things are kind of wrong here. But in this case, that passage reminds me most of Oak Island and that it's a puzzle. If you go in strong, you're going to ruin it. Right. It's like the one of the, my favorite movies, Heat. Uh, De Niro asks, are we going in stealth or are we going in strong? Are you going to try and figure this out and go in sneaky and, uh, and steal the treasure out from under something by stealth and uh, cunning? Or you're going to go in with guns blasting. And that's initially, sadly, what happened with Oak Island. You start digging down. It's like, this is a puzzle. This is a game of chess. If you goof this up, you flood the whole thing. Now, with Oak Island, though, I think that that may have all been a ruse. There are certainly things to, if you believe the stories of the augers going down, them hitting chests, finding pieces of parchment with India ink on it, pieces of metal that were unknown. But it may not be in my estimation, the real way to get in. Here, I think it's a little simpler, but this is definitely one entrance. But what she's saying here with this message is, this treasure, whatever's down here, will not be acquired by the unworthy. You have chosen poorly. You're in yes. danger if you don't do this thing right. So that's a huge warning. And you're right, I didn't really think about the geometrical or... A sacred geometry aspects, perhaps, of the map that she drew and the layout of, of this thing. Yeah, and that's a recurring theme with dozens mm -hmm. of additional drawings that are published in Colonel Kenneth's book. There's a geometric theme to them. They're very elegant in a way. One of them even looks a little bit like the etching that they sent up on Voyager. Yeah. Of man. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, so I, there's a lot to unpack there, which we will. And again, another overused word. We'll, <laughs> we'll curate the unpacking of that in part two. <laughs> this is the part that uh, reminded me of Skinwalker yeah. Ranch. On December 7th, the second day of this operation, and we're not going to do this day by day because it was two years, right. but there, there, there were some phenomenal events that happened right at the beginning of this. Oh, and by the way, I did want to point this out. This December 7th, 1990, the Shermans purchased Skinwalker Ranch in the late 90s, right. just a few years after this. And stuff was happening at that ranch before they got to it. So th there's a little bit of concurrent activity going on there. There's They're not in the same neighborhood or anything, but I, I, I did think that was interesting. So on December 7th, 1990, day two of the work at uh, Sardachina, the brand new state-of-the-art excavator they had brought to dig with ceased to operate. It simply would not function. There were no oil leaks, no sign of damage, and no foreseeable reasons why it wouldn't work. It had been fine the day before. Yeah, well, that's a lot like the series now. <laughs> that's out now. I think a new uh, new season's coming up. It's just like, yeah, you, you, go, you go there and then the rocket blows up. And you go there and now the excavator doesn't work. And you go there. It's, exactly. Yeah. That's the Skinwalker Ranch series. And oh, by the way, I did want to say for folks who hear Forrest mentioning Lafitte, that's a series we did on the Pirate Lafitte. Yes. A Lost Treasure in the uh, New Orleans area. If you look up uh, our back catalog, L-A-F-F-I-T-T-E, mm -hmm. you will find uh, that series is interesting series about a search for his lost treasure. Um, he was such a successful pirate, he almost controlled the entire Southeast. And the, the, the word to fence something was based on goods that he stole being passed through a fence for money. Being so. passed through a fence. <laughs> you stick your hand in the hole and uh, yeah, that's where that yeah. originated. But so, uh, anyway. And again, uh, when you have control of the trade through an area, you have the ability to amass a lot of uh, wealth. Same thing with Sheriff Plummer and another mentioned series in that he was the sheriff and possibly more than likely the highwayman in charge of a lot of gold coming through the area because he knew what travelers were coming from uh, from the east to the west passing through there. 
But here's the other thing I was going to say about uh, when you have that kind of control, supposedly millions were stolen at that time in today's money in gold and payroll. That was the other thing coming out West. And, and sadly, you know, people would come out with their life savings to buy the supplies for their farming operations. And, you know, they would steal that. Well, they never found any of that money. It must have went somewhere, but it was never found. Well, the only lead you can get is possibly from somebody who can take a shortcut, and that would be a psychic. So the psychics are saying, like, look, those on top are blocking the work to prevent damage to what is uncovered. So what they're thinking or what they're saying is the reason the excavator is not working is this work is too important. There is too much risk of damage archaeological and construction-oriented damage to the work that you need to do, you need to proceed from here by hand. Well, in another case of everything is possibly connected, who's one of your favorite guys at Oak Island who is fond of using dynamite for his excavation? Yeah, uh, Dunfield. Dunfield the Destroyer, <laughs> I called him, I think, at Oak right. Island. He just turned the whole island into Swiss cheese. It almost didn't matter who came along later to do what, because he did so much damage to the surface, right. all the top layers of... Yeah, you're bringing heavy machinery, and you're just clearing... Uh, it's a little bit of the Gordian knot. Like, let's not waste time trying to unravel this and decide who's king. I'm just going to take out my sword, cut it in half, done. And in this case, that makes sense because this is, a lot of this, uh, well, they will get to hard rock, but it's not easy digging. Plus, as I said, this is in the wintertime. Ground is hard and frozen. So yeah. it's a monumental task. And in this case of Oak Island, though, it's just like, look, let's not pussyfoot around. Let's just get excavators here and mow the whole thing down. But what I like about this and Oak Island is that that ain't going to work. This is a yeah. clever puzzle. You can't just uh, tip the chessboard over and win. As you just said a few minutes ago, this gear, every time they go to dig with heavy equipment at Skinwalker Ranch, the gear breaks down. Right. New, whatever. Brought in by third parties, rented, whatever. It stops working. This exact same kind of thing happens. It seems a little strange to be a coincidence mm -hmm. to me. Mm. So... Um, and especially considering this happened back in 1990, those guys are having those problems in the past two or three years. Right. So the team is forced to start digging by hand. They go back, they meet with General Minchev again. Mm -hmm. At this point in Colonel Kenneff's descriptions in his book on the Sarichina phenomenon, it becomes clear that for the folks involved in this project, that the presence of ethereal, telepathically communicating higher beings are just a part of the process. Mm -hmm. And this is something that Forrest said earlier. As ordinary to them as the people they are digging in the tunnels with. Now, and, that, and this says something. It's interesting to see that incorporated into a mystery that we cover. Just right. the complete, at least from one particular point of view, the complete removal of stigma associated with that. It makes for a very interesting retelling of what happened. Now, conversely, culturally, if you refuse to believe in that sort of thing, do you now throw the baby out with the bathwater and disregard the entire story? Now, undoubtedly, some people will, but we think that's a disservice, too. There are boundaries to everything, including information, borders. But borders are just that. So if you think some of the information is bad, yeah. does that automatically mean all adjacent information is bad, too? Perhaps. In some scenarios, it probably is. It's just food for thought. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to see why I'm setting this up. Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, look, none of us are using this information here to actually go find anything. This is entertainment, folks, and we were entertained by it. We hope you are, too, in the telling of this story, because what does everyone look for at the beginning of the movie? Based on a true story. And right. here, it, it kind of is whether you believe some of the details or not. So it starts off, okay, treasure is a very real thing, especially if uh, you have the means to go dig it up like uh, like the military, and you have a lot of control within the military and, and military means. 
much like Mel's Hole, you start bringing in the uh, the yellow equipment, right? As they said, yeah. And uh, you close it off, and you have that ability yellow to put gear. yeah yellow the, the gear. yellow gear, and you start closing yeah. it off, and you have the ability to keep people out, so they're not prying, and you pretty much have everything at your disposal, including at the beginning uh, enough money for the to budget for this. And so it starts off like that, but then, well, here's where I'll make a distinction because if you believe in some of these other places that purportedly our U.S. military have closed off and know about, and, and certainly this is no secret, but there are dumbs, deep underground military bases where it's all very secret and you don't know about them, you're not supposed to. And, and we do know about uh, some of the bigger ones, Cheyenne Mountain and this and that, but there's a lot more that you don't know about and who knows what's going on there or even Area 51. We know it exists. You don't really know what's going on there. When it, word comes out, you don't want to believe that either because it, right. it's too outrageous. So they have access to the site and they can control what's going on, but it starts to become overwhelming, I think, even for the searchers. So if you're entertained like us, just go with it for the moment and, and realize that they're getting messages or they're starting to decipher what's going on as a message to them. And it's something they need to deal with because they're not going to make any progress if they keep ignoring it. You can't, again, you, you just can't uh, bull in a China shop your way into this. And they start getting messages through their psychic friends, their contacts here, that uh, that is steering them in the right or wrong way. But... I will admit some of the names associated with the psychic context, they made me smile. Yeah, I can't figure out what's happening here. But And again, due to translation errors, this is a little tricky to decipher. But they go back after the excavator dies to meet with General Minchef again and, and fill him in. And the long and short of this next meeting is apparently is that Eli uh, Laganova was communicating with a couple of beings who referred to themselves, uh, again, translated, I guess they were calling themselves Kiki and Roro. I'm not sure why their names are so cute. It could be bad <laughs> translation, but I guess initially these two things were working uh, in concert together to guide them. They were uh, collaborating, these two beings. Did you feel any connection to the other surname, Kekamanov? Kiki and Kekamanov? No, but I mean, yeah. now that you mention that... I, I don't know. It's just odd. I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's why I smiled is, is that the... Uh, yeah, the, it's, there are funny things about this, of course, and, yeah. and you can chuckle. And I, <laughs> if it yeah. wasn't recorded, it, it, this would be too impossible to believe. Uh, but keep yeah. going, sir. Yes. Well, so apparently, for whatever reason, these two beings were now at odds with one another. These two beings that no one has seen, they're just sending messages through the psychic. So uh, they're against each other, and this divides the team up in terms of who they want to decide with. So now, ostensibly... There's the great possibility that this entire operation is tearing itself apart from the inside by arguing about which imaginary being a psychic <laughs> is talking to that they should be following instructions from. All right. Another uh, another reference. And again, don't look at these as I know. We're, it, it may seem like uh, we're not getting to the narrative, but this is all tied this is in. This is part yeah. of it, but it's also references to, like I said, when you have kind of limited source material with this, except for a few reports and the reporters of the story are credible uh, to us in the West. You, you talk, well, depending on your viewpoint, I guess, <laughs> journalists and, and, and high-ranking military people. But in this case is that you don't have a whole lot of source material, so you're, you're going with it. So there's not a ton of really established reports. And what Scott and I do, uh, and hopefully it's worthwhile, is that you start making connections and parallels to other stories we've covered and know about. And maybe there are patterns here 
to help us understand what's going on. And what else does it remind you of, Scott? Well, where these two beings, if they are communicating and there's a real paranormal happening here, and now they're causing strife mm -hmm. among the group and tearing them apart, this is something that we have seen before with the siren call of the hungry right. ghost and the vertical plane. More siren call in this case, I think. Uh, well, uh... well, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess both of those stories have that, and it, and that comes around to the trickster idea and the whole thing about unraveling the humanity that's caught up in the interactions. Well, the consciousnesses of it, I guess. In that, remember, in vertical plane, you had twenty one oh nine. That's right. They I were am fighting. the puppet master. I'm playing yeah. with you. Can you figure out the riddle? And then you have somebody else who's like, hey, you stop that. You know, uh, stop giving them uh, these humans clues. And you had 2109 fighting with another entity who's trying to yeah. subvert him. And they're yeah. arguing amongst themselves. That's right. That's right. It's paranormal comedy. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's hijinks. And that's the same and, thing that's happening here, apparently. Right. A little bit. Yeah. Like I said, you trust it and you can't because it's all invisible to us. You're only getting messages, and again, in the case of Vertical Plane, through an old PC, and here you're getting it through people who may be mistaken. As we said, the best psychics, Baba Banga, 80%, maybe this is the 20% that is wrong. Yeah. And you're yeah. off in the wrong direction, and that makes a difference. Here, though, like I said, there's something going on here, which is, uh, again, it's paranormal Keystone Cops. I guess if you're, because the other possibility, of course, is that the psychics are all pulling everybody's legs. They're, it's a hoax and they're manipulating everyone. That could very well be the case. And it could be something to do with government funds, perhaps. Right. And that's, that'll certainly come up in our theories when we get to those in part two. But for now, let's say, no, this is a paranormal happening, but it's also a loggerhead situation where there's some kind of fight happening in the other dimension that's bleeding over into this one. Let's just pretend. Let's little suspension of disbelief. Mm. Why would that be happening? Because it can. Whatever the case, spirit mommy and daddy are fighting and the kids <laughs> don't know who to stay with in the divorce. That's mm. what's going down oh. right now. Mm -hmm. This leads to a schism of belief in the best course of excavation action. And Professor Naplatinov, the Minister of Defense at the time, who was aligned with his psychic daughter, Marina Naplatinova, are siding with one of these beings, and Eli Laganova is with the other one and has some folks in her camp. It's mm -hmm. a little hard to get all the specifics figured out from translation, but that's what it sounds like is happening. No, but it also sounds like uh, academic competing uh, archaeological teams who believe yeah. different things. Yeah, that's right. There's always people arguing over what theory, what's right. the best way to proceed here? And now they seem to be doing that from uh, both sides of the veil. So uh, what's this all about? Well, both Kiki and Roro <laughs> have said that there's a message for humanity that's going to be uncovered in this operation. Right. And they each want to be in charge of getting to it, but they won't share the message. Mm -hmm. Now, Colonel Conniff says in his book that he suggested that they both share their messages, and if they're the same, everyone continues to work together. Right. But Professor Colonel Naplatinov refused, and he and his daughter resigned from the project. This shocked Colonel Conniff because it was only day two. <laughs> this was right. day two. Yeah, that this, already. That these people came apart. In uh, 1992, sadly, Marina Naplatinova committed suicide, and four years later, the colonel, her dad, yeah. uh, the, the two of them that had just quit, 
was found dead under mysterious circumstances beneath a bridge in the capital city of Sofia. Yeah. In, uh, yeah. Also, uh, sound familiar? It's a little bit of strife and uh, the other yes. sad fate of Joe Fisher from That's right. Siren Call of Hungry Ghosts. Yep, who uh, after the book was written, uh, he unfortunately took his own life. There are ongoing parallels here. It's a little strange. Kind of starts taking notes from this point forward, his own notes, which is how he was able to write a book. The operation at this point is named Operation Sunbeam or Sunray. Interestingly, Kanaf says that they just worked feverishly without questioning any information that they received from Laganova, but just doing. Remarkably similar aloofness required for the Philip experiment to work. They just kind of went. They dug by hand, relentlessly, not really talking, just working, taking turns with the picks, not questioning the messages coming through the psychic, right. just doing it. Well, as uh, Colonel Kanov explains, and again, this is a, a very rough translation, it's like the earth that they were digging through started out very hard, but once they started working it, it, it seemed to soften for them, like I said. And keep in mind, you're digging in December, <laughs> going in, it's, it's going to be like that and cold. Uh, I'm not sure when the winter ends, but not soon. They got right. a few months of this hard digging and in cold uh, weather, but you know these people are very hardy. Okay, and he also said that he saw numerous colors in the sediment uh, when they were digging, and that suggested to him some sort of structure in layers of sediment. Right, so either it's fill, or at uh, in geological processes there were uh, an overlay again, thirteen hundred years, a thousand years, something overlaying that soil that was intentional or just geological processes, but they're making progress. That it's a sign that they're getting through the layers. And uh, geologists have told him that uh, what he was observing was just the basic strata from normal tectonic and geologic activity. But he disputed that, and he felt that they were digging into something that had been constructed that was man-made. Or, I don't know if you should put man in front of made. Oh, yes. Well, uh, non-human made. Human made or yeah, non-human maybe made. maybe non-human made. Is yeah. that something is uh, is non-organic. There's a, a fabrication to this, and that's another thing that people will argue at Oak Island, again, not having the evidence to see the layers and what they've discovered going down uh, deeper into the layers. But it's been argued, like, what's well, just a sinkhole? And as it pulled in stuff and debris over the years, that's what people are finding. But when you start to find it at measured intervals of 10 feet as yeah. a platform of logs, and on the one platform, you find something there. And at yeah. 90 feet, you find that, again, a rectangular stone with words on it. Yeah, you got to wonder, this, this seems very unlikely that this is natural erosion into a giant sinkhole. But some right. people are going to believe that. And I, right. I don't fault them because we don't know. But what he believes, kind of, is that there's some order to this. This is not just natural, but the layers that they're finding and, and getting through with the different colored striations reveal to him that they're on the right path. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Shree Cardoza. Now back to the show. All right, so here we are. We're still kind of in the early phases of things. The weather is getting bad. Like Forrest said, it's wintertime, and they yeah. realize all this precipitation is coming down into the yeah. hole. So they put a tent up over it, which is there's a somewhat famous picture of that. Uh, that's yeah. one of the ones that's really out there where you can see this tent over the hole from the fence and everything. 
it's just so mysterious looking. It's iconic. <laughs> it's an iconic representation of like whatever mysterious thing is happening. It's like this bad photo of a tent over a muddy hill or whatever. So Well, it's like E.T. You have that uh, yeah. pop-up inflatable tent with guys in uh, scary biohazmat suits. Running through giant gerbil trails. Right, but do we... <laughs> <laughs> Are, we're asking for permission to post some of those photos, all right? I'm trying to get in touch with the journalist. I'm having a hard time, though. He, The only contact point I can find for him is on Facebook. Yeah. And we're not friends on there, so right, right. I don't know if he'll even respond. I, I sent okay. him a message. And then I also Google translated it to Bulgarian and sent it again. But for all I know, I said <laughs> something turned bad into about an his insult. Mother. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, dare you? Well, I'm not going to give you anything. What I so love about this is that is so far it's shaping up. I mean, this is all very. Hey, talk about movie idea. Very yeah. cinematic. No, it is. This and, and someone else somewhere said this should be a movie. Right. I agree. This is like this has all the trappings of a really great movie right here. And what I like about this is, uh, you know, unlike most of our American fare over here and uh, Stranger Things, which I'm still trying to get through that uh, the <laughs> season before last, all the uh, the Eastern Europeans aren't scary ruffians. Yes. Here, yeah. they're the heroes. They're trying to get to the truth. That's right. But they're employing some out of the box thinking here. And what I loved about this is that as it was described by the colonel is that the snow is very wet and heavy and was hard to just drive there alone and, and walk through. Yeah. But they're trying to work here as well. So they're dealing with these, as you said, rough conditions. And then here's the other thing I love is Colonel kind of says they thought this work would maybe take about three days. Yeah, <laughs> we'll have this wrapped up. So, we'll be in and out quick. It reminds me yeah. of a quote uh, from Bill Gates. They said, people generally overestimate what they can get done in three days, but you're surprised what you can get done in three months. Yeah. So he says, yeah. scope out your expectations. But people, you know, they always think, well, this will just take a few days. And then you realize like, no, this is a lot more than we dealt with. And to their credit though, or to their defense, they didn't know how far down this thing would be. No, and how complicated it got. And that's what's interesting right. about it. And by the way, to this day, I still consistently underestimate how much time it will take to do tasks associated with the production of our show. Absolutely. years, still doing yeah, that. I so. know, it's wishful thinking. But uh, I wanted to also remind folks how the tunnel digging is going is that it's kind of going down into a spiral. And once again, there is a connection to Oak Island. Yes. In that there was... It wasn't Blankenship, but one of the guys who kept notebooks, uh, it was one of, one of the most interesting things that I saw. He passed away. His widow gives the Laginas her husband's notebooks, and they scour through them, and they're all just spiral old notebooks that he, he wrote down his findings. And there's one where he describes, and I think it's at the bottom of the swamp, a spiral winding down passageway right. that he believed was a door to and possibly the treasure. And I, sad to say, I just haven't had time to keep up with the show. I don't know whatever happened with that. But generally, when you watch something like that, it's like, they never get back to it. And what you're realizing with production is that they maybe tried or something happened and they couldn't. And so they just dropped it. There's a, there's a lot of that with those kinds of shows. Yeah. yeah. It just You realize, like, they didn't announce it. They don't have to. But uh, something came up and uh, it wasn't feasible. In this case, though, is that the uh, the spiral tunnel goes down to some kind of platform door or trap door somehow which leads to something else. And that's kind of what we're looking at here. This thing has led them into a spiraling down type of tunneling, which then leads to the stone. Not the 90-foot stone, but yes, a stone. Yeah, and one of the things that's confusing about this story is how much of that was work that they were doing and how much of that was them discovering something that was already there. And right. there's a little bit of obfuscation about that uh, related to the way the story is told, and the other thing that's happening, and, and it was too much to be able to convey in an episode of the show, is that 
they are getting really, really complex instructions here. And this goes yeah. back to the vertical plane series that we did about how you need to proceed to do certain things. There's the, the instructions that are coming down through the psychics are like, okay, you need to build a shaft that's exactly one meter mm -hmm. wide, 1.5 meters tall, dig it in this particular fashion. And it's like, if you don't follow these instructions exactly, this isn't going to work. So they're continuously going in there and just doing this work that's been prescribed in a very strange and precise way by these otherworldly voices coming down through to the psychics because this is delicate work. You are approaching a secret that is going to change all of mankind. It's a message for humanity. It's critical that it is approached in exactly the right way. And it's not clear if this is for scientific reasons or reasons of reverence. There's an idea that maybe they're going to be opening some sort of portal that's a connection to other, get ready for this, this is a connection to other <laughs> worlds in the galaxy. Yeah. And yeah. that these portals exist on planets all over the galaxy and possibly the right. universe. And they're all kind of the same. And if you don't go and try to open this door the right way, you're going to screw it up. It's either not going to work. You're going to die. You're going to get sucked into the fifth dimension and turned into a piece of paper. I don't know. It's a bad if you don't do it right. So they're taking it very seriously. They're taking the approach and they're taking the instructions very seriously. They're not doing that thing where they just leave the instructions on the ground and go willy-nilly with the shovels. <laughs> right. And it, it's a little reminiscent of the way you described that of the series that I really enjoyed. I was trying to get you to watch it called Night Sky. Came out last year or the year before, uh, starring Sissy Spacek and J.K. Simmons, terrific actors. Really interesting, but the idea was that there are, around the Earth, these portals that kind of zip you from one place to another, and even off-world. And unfortunately, like a lot of series, I started to enjoy it, and then it gets canceled. Ugh, I hate it when they do that. Outer Range has a little bit of that. We brought Outer this range. up with Mel's Hall. Outer Range, I'm waiting for the second season on that. I'm pretty sure that's happening. Dark, which I think is a German production. Another yep, similar idea that. there. Yep. Speaking of J.K. Simmons, he had a show called Counterpart. We're getting into a whole Hollywood yep. thing, which I enjoyed, <laughs> but also they canceled. Yes. What's interesting right. to me, and I always think about this, when I think about Hollywood and also the stories that we cover and the chicken and the egg, it's like, which thing is inspiring what? Right, right. But sometimes you do wonder if they're talking about things that exist because they exist in our minds psychically already, if you believe any of this at all. But like these ideas yeah. that are out there that like, uh, this is how a portal works. I mean, we don't have mathematical or hard evidence of portals anywhere, really. I mean, there's some, but right. yet huge slices of humanity routinely go to Sedona to get caught up in <laughs> vortexes and or yeah. portals of some kind there. So it's like, why... Do we believe this stuff? Where did it come from? Where did it right. start? And how does it connect to stories like this one? Well, this is where this story is heading down this spiral tunnel. Why is this such a predominant archetype, I think, in our human psyche, our subconscious about, I mean, we've talked about this since the beginning when I get, maybe when we started Oak Island. Things buried in the ground are mysterious. Where else are you going to hide it? And it goes to folklore, uh, even about talking about Skinwalker Ranch again and native folklore is that the beings that were here before, not human, got fed up with us or what we were doing <laughs> to the earth and they went into the mountain and they come out again here and there, but they really don't care for our shenanigans, our monkey shines, monkey being the operative word here. It's like they come out and see like, okay, we're going to mess with you or we're going to do this or that, but we're going back in because we don't like it here anymore. You ruined all this. It rings of an interdimensional thing. And I always thought of, yeah, I always thought Hollow Earth sounded pretty silly, that concept. But then you're thinking about it the wrong way, perhaps. It's not a big cavern, 
but maybe an interdimensional state or being that is uh, just below deck, shall we say. So what we yeah. have here is that uh, what you're talking about is like, why is this idea so prevalent throughout our movies and stories and folklore? Is it something that is prototypical in the DNA memory of all humans before we even knew what was going on and we're just kind of... <laughs> We're <laughs> running around half naked. And what you're saying here, and I maybe tend to believe it, is that it could be something that is from the earliest forms of what it is to be human. And that's where this story is going. Yeah. yeah. To that point of origin. So they're doing a lot of work here. They're working so hard, the hand tools are getting broken. Uh, some folks are describing the earth or whatever they're encountering as they're excavating as being as hard as concrete initially. But yeah. then once they start working with it, it softens. And I feel like um, Kenev was saying it almost transforms once you interact with it in a way. Ah, uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, is that alien? I don't know. Maybe. Well, it sounds like what was found in the, in the second hole in, uh, in, in northern Nevada. Oh, yeah. On the Basque Range is that, that, uh, that mysterious substance that they brought out, which got so heavy, I think it broke the chains. Yeah. And it transformed when you were working with it. A concept getting back to <laughs> narratives and fiction and movies and uh, and novels written about by Kurt Vonnegut in that book. Uh, what was that, Scott? Cat's Cradle. That's right. Yeah. And uh, what was the substance? Ice Nine. <laughs> Very cool. Which is either a, a a a a hard seltzer title or a deodorant or uh, in in this case uh, a substance that was so heavy when they brought it out of the hole it started to sink, I think, into the earth. It's like a the China syndrome, like a meltdown situation where it's like going down and they they can't yeah. stop it from going. And that's the what the uh the guy took a little bit of it back to the cabin and it like wound up that's destroying right. his cabin. It yeah. went right into the ground and uh I think he thought he was gonna repurpose it for <laughs> for something in his in his cabin or just thought it was cool. But and look, I would also go with the idea that perhaps this is just something fanciful, but as I always say, pretty good sci-fi, if it is. Yeah, very good sci-fi. Somebody's on their toes. So after they keep working, uh, they're down at about 18 feet now, or 5.5 meters. They, and keep in mind, they're, they are digging themselves in a spiral formation, we think. They come across a strange rectangular stone. So the lead psychic on the project, Ellie Laginova, reported that it was covered with a bacteria. She's, I think, getting this information yeah. from her guides or whoever's communicating with She said it had a bacteria on it that would be dangerous to humans. Right. Which, Scott, you remember where else you've heard that, or at least I have, which is claimed that that's what caused the death associated with the curse was that there was some kind of smeared bacteria that survived. And I do remember on a terrific uh, TV special, Zahi Hawa saying, uh, no, he does not shave the day of an excavation or going into there because you don't want any nicks or cuts, as we mentioned at the top of the show. Yeah. They can turn infected because you don't know what's floating around down there either, which is also kind of a scary proposition and also very much a sci-fi horror kind of a, a proposition here. Yeah, it's a little bit of a Petri dish situation. And the, and this is also happening with all the melting that's happening around the world right now. They're yeah. discovering viruses and bacteria that was been frozen for 10,000 years. I'm like, hey, let's thaw this out and take it to the lab. You know, yeah. you know what, let's not, let's not. <laughs> which is the premise of The Thing. Yeah, That exactly. was a story a couple of years ago, remember, that I think Russia had drilled down through a glacier to the the deepest, oldest embodiment of trapped water. Yes, yeah. 
I remember and that. they brought some water up, and it's a, there's a vial of it sitting on Putin's desk, and people were like, hey, wait, you want to try drinking that? Yeah, I think it? they also discovered life forms that are, were new that yeah. didn't exist anywhere else on the planet, like microscopic life. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. So now, so they've gotten down to this thing, and what's happening is, again, the messages are coming through the psychics that this is a door. This is a door that they found, and they're going to need to wear protective clothing, gas masks, and gloves before they deal with this. So at that point, they all undertook a serious hazmat decontamination training and protocol, mm -hmm. which they developed to try to figure out how, how we're going to deal with this. We've got this hole in the ground. It's hard to get in and out of here. You can't even walk through the tunnels they're digging. We're down at this point. If something goes sideways, how do we deal with the catastrophe that might unfold without losing any of our personnel or right. setting something loose into the environment, yeah, it's like we were just talking yeah. about, that suddenly is spreading all over the earth and killing everybody because it's like, what is this weird thing happening? So then they came up with this long, complex plan that had all these different steps for decontamination, all the stuff that you would do if you were exposed to radiation at a nuclear power plant or something. It's that sort of thing. And this is all spelled out in Kanev's book. Mm -hmm. This whole thing, this kind of stops them down for a bit. They're like, we got to come up with all this. We got to get this certain equipment in here. Yeah. And then when right. you th start thinking about the 16 million levs and where that money went, it's yeah. like, well, this is a complex situation. You're going to have to right. call in hazmat, come up with protocols, train people, teach everyone, okay, what do we do if when we open this, some crazy aerosol comes out and turns yeah. us all into mushrooms in front of each other or whatever. Well. <laughs> it's that they wanted to be prepared for that. So they trained for that before they took the next step. Interesting you said mushroom. That's another yeah. uh, theory that's been kicked around lately is that uh, there could be a, a deadly spore or some kind of primordial panspermia spore getting released, right. which that's a story we got to cover. I, I've never got a satisfactory answer other than it's just been dismissed, I think, by uh, mainstream science. That it is uh, not what it seems, but there is a microscopic uh, electron microscope shot of a pellet spewing some goo that came from the upper atmosphere. So what's going on there? But yeah, you don't want to, uh, well, it's just good protocol. You, you don't want to be uh, damaging anything. Also, if there are rare antiquities, they also would be damaged by exposure to air or whatever dust you're doing, whatever you're kicking right. up. So yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's the same thing. It's like when you bring an artifact up from the ocean floor, from a sunken ship, you, you can't it, just yeah. bring it into, you got you got to be thinking about how the pressure's reduced, it's brought to the surface, and then when you expose it to oxygen, it can instantly uh, crumble yeah. or turn it into, a, or start a chemical process that you can't undo. So you, you have to think about all those kinds of things. So they're considering all this stuff. There's another source, and this is a fascinating one out there, is a guy named Alex Putney. We downloaded a PDF by him. We'll have a link mm -hmm. to that. He focuses on a, a different arena of these kind of like resonance around the earth. It's right, like right. it's a whole serious thing to him. But in his writings on this tunnel, he writes at one point, they took out a slab made of an unknown metal and they were hit at that moment with a powerful beam of light. Right. And then inside of that area, the next area that they went into, they they were on a kind of silvery gray floor and there were smooth walls that had a strange form of writing on them. Yeah, just like so, Kincaid's cave. Just that like Kincaid's cave. Just yes. like that one description where they're somehow not unnatural, human-made smooth walls with inscriptions on them. And yeah. also just quickly, that was uh, another thing that uh, I believe that I had read in the notes of Edgar Casey. again, not him saying that, but his muses, was that there was a... Atlantean storehouse of knowledge under one of the paws of the Sphinx. Yes. And yeah. that it, and yeah. that's kind of what's reminding me here, what the, the voices are saying 
to Demeter that if you can find the source of this and find the treasure, this will be revealing knowledge to all mankind and, and helping everybody. And it's all glorious and wonderful. And I know it was kind of silly, the message he got. It's like the secret of the Mona Lisa. And it's like, okay, that kind of silly. But yeah. then you wonder, it's like, it's just, why has a portrait of a very pleasant looking woman that is that old captured the imagination of so many people? What is it? Is it just the style of painting, the way it was done? Or is there something more about it that is keying into our subconscious? And there's a secret to it that would change the way we think about things. Yeah. That's what's being promised here. Or maybe there's something hidden behind the painting itself. Could be behind the painting. Here, though, I mean, I'm we, sure we, it's been x-rayed a thousand times, but, you know. Whatever. Yeah, who knows? But it could be the story behind it also. They just found, by the way, using some new technique, they just found some verse of the Bible that had been I just read heard that. in 1,500 years. Yeah, yeah. I heard so, that uh, coming no in. No one's saying uh, what it says. It has something to do with the uh, the apostles getting hungry and plucking the heads off of grain and rubbing it in their hands and eating it, I think, on, mm. on their journey. That's how the chapter starts off. And as uh, we were talking about so many times before, actually, we just did when it came to NASA and our uh, also uh, Russian-themed cosmonaut. Oh, yes. Junk drawer episode. We talked about the the, the cos a bunch of cosmonauts saw angels outside the uh, the Soyuz seven. So right. if you want to hear that, you got to uh, get over to our Patreon and check out the the last junk drawer. But yeah. right, it's a classic uh, move. It seems by authorities in this case, a scribe to because it's on vellum. You know, basically yeah. dried animal skins that uh, it was hard to come by. So he just scraped that part off <laughs> to re right. to recycle it. So uh, thinking, oh, there's other copies. It'll be fine. In this case, though, you have uh, possibly a mystery, and it makes me also think of uh, Nicolas Poussin in Arcadia, Ego, which is also the, the mystery possibly of Oak Island and the Templars and all this. And so there's a lot of interlocked huge mysteries that could be part of a network underground for safekeeping in all these locations around the earth. And uh, here could be a few of them. And and again, that's what the uh, the voices, the muses are saying to the psychics and the dowsers that you're on the right track, but you must follow the instructions precisely or uh, doom will ensnare you. Yes. These instructions that keep coming, it's like, okay, now do this, now do that. Mm -hmm. Right. Now it's getting more and more complex. And Colonel Kenev also said that there was an area here where there was a force field that the men couldn't get past. This is an invisible, like straight out of Star Trek force field. <laughs> and when they tried to, they would be violently thrown backward. So much so that one guy, I think he was, I read one account that said he was yeah. thrown back through the air four or five feet, hitting right. his head so bad on the back of the tunnel or the yeah. tunnel wall that he was injured and collapsed. They had um, to extract him, yeah, yeah, immediately. What is that? What is this thing that they can't get past? Which is part of why I think Colonel Kenov is such a believer. He's talking about some really serious stuff here that people on the surface, and that's another thing I want to convey, and I don't think mm -hmm. I conveyed that. Most of the people on the surface had no idea what was going on. Right. Even the personnel, the military personnel who were there to guard it, they had no idea what was going on in the hole. And only a very small number of people were going down there. And so those are the folks that saw it and experienced what was happening, where the people on the top, they just see dirt coming out and folks going in, although there were rumors of hearing exchanges of gunfire and that sort of thing. And that's another part of this, and this part may be creepypasta, we don't know, but, but some witnesses insist there was actually a subterranean firefight of some kind, where the two men at the rear guard fired bullets that mm -hmm. stopped in the air and dropped to the ground, Matrix style. <laughs> and yeah. so... <laughs> Well, we're not so sure about that, but as the, no. there's a lot of legends that abound about this one, 
But there's also a lot of this story that's verifiably true, much of it through the pioneering work of the aforementioned journalist Dmitry Stotkov uh, when he wrote for the paper Nightwork. Yes. Also, it reminds me a little bit about the purported uh, firefight uh, between uh, military personnel, U.S., and aliens inside Dulce Base. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, some were injured, and they came stumbling out, and uh, yeah. That was straight out of uh, Stranger Things, that whole story. <laughs> or Stranger <laughs> Things probably took it from that story. They probably honestly. did, yes. Yeah, they yeah. have people scouring that kind of stuff for uh, material, like the CIA does in uh, the plot of uh, Three Days of the Condor. They do read these things. They have people going through, and probably it's AI now, to find uh, various plots, ideas, things that get leaked. Had they been doing that with a Discord gamer channel, perhaps they would have found uh, some leaked military secrets Two months ago, three months ago. Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I am hearing, of course, it's probably just a cover-up, but they're just like, we can't just willy-nilly pop into private servers and monitor what people are saying inside America. Yeah, I, that's I, where they're, they're, I, I mean, they're, I bet they're going to start now, <laughs> but yeah. If they go. haven't been. Right. But getting back to Ellie Loginova and her writings, uh, where again did she get them? I want you to tell us all. Uh, well, I, I... Where she got them supposedly from these beings that were guiding her. There was Kiki and Roro, but then after <laughs> the falling out between Kiki and Roro, one of yeah. them went away. And honestly, I can't remember which one did now. I yeah, think, I know. I can't keep it. I think it was Kiki and was replaced by another being named Sorel, S O R E L, mm -hmm. which sounds like something out of the Superman. Uh, yeah, if there's a yeah. dash, if there's a hyphen, otherwise there was it's no an, hyphen. It's the name so, of a boot so, or a sausage. We didn't want to go too far down that route with all these different personalities and all yeah. that. You can find this stuff online, but again, it's hard when it's being translated. But there was there was a new character involved, and they have different personalities. It perfectly mirrors a lot of this stuff from the vertical plane. It really does. Yeah. It's just a different set of characters, but it's the same play. You would almost think they were based on each other in terms of the nature of the interaction, which I personally find very intriguing. Because if you're if both of these parties are making all this up, mm -hmm. they've made up two stories that are remarkably similar. Remarkably yeah. similar. Like, there is a lot of common ground. Well, simultaneous uh, course, invention uh, theory. But, or is there something about how these things are working on the other side? It's like, that's how it's presenting itself. And it's not necessarily benevolent, it's not necessarily mm. omniscient, but whatever it is, it has a desire to operate this way when it interacts with us. I don't know what that means. Yeah, you know, like, and uh, getting back to Rich's uh, Mothman scenario, it's just, perhaps it's just like an interdimensional window washer that has a different perspective than us and can see yeah. things that we can't, yet they're not, uh, <laughs> not anymore, well, let's say they are advanced, but they are in different ways. It's not like... They're all that terribly wise. Right. There's some pettiness going on here, which you think yeah, you'd be beyond that. There's personal yeah. Exactly. There's That's the strange thing about it, which that might say, hey, does that mean it's us or it's at least a carbon-based life form? Because we all know not it's not just people that have personalities. Our yeah. dogs have personalities. Our cats, the, the fish in our fish tank. You might even be able to say that a plant has a personality. Who knows? If you really studied it, you might be like, mm -hmm. well, this one's aggressive. Look at all the volunteers <laughs> coming out of that one. The one next to it is lazy. Yeah. There's a lot of unusual observations to be made here. So it's at this point they send Laginovas 
writings because she yes. kept all these notebooks. She had two or three right, like right. thick notebooks which were disappeared. Some of them were sent to Baba Vanga, the blind seer. Mm-hmm. And we talked about her earlier. She was the blind Bulgarian seer known as the Nostradamus of the Balkans. And reportedly, she had an 80% accuracy rate, as we mentioned with her mm-hmm. predictions. She lost her eyesight when a tornado yanked her up off the ground and threw her some distance into a field. It took a while for villagers to find her, and she was scared, and her eyes were covered with sand and debris from the cyclone that had uh, tossed her there. She couldn't open them. Some money was raised for an operation to help her, but it was a poor village. The operation was unsuccessful, and eventually she went completely blind. Purportedly, she predicted Mm 9-11, that the 44th president of the United States would be African-American, and that was Barack Obama. However, she also predicted the 44th president would be the last president of the United States. So Hmm. there's some things that aren't true, some things that are. Uh, We'll talk more about her record and about her in part two. But for tonight, we'll leave you with what Baba Vanga said when she was presented with Eli Laginova's writings on Zurichina. And it's going to leave you wondering... Could the Earth's first proto-human have been buried for the ages in Zurichna? Listen to what Baba Vanga said. You will find a sealed and pressurized capsule containing a yellow monkey, neither man nor woman. What will you do with that yellow monkey? If you open the capsule, the air will revive it. I ask, what will you do when it wakes up and speaks? <laughs> That's going to wrap up part one of Entombed in Zarichina. We'll be back with part two in two weeks. Join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk Drawer, which most of the time we do live on video for our patrons at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. The next one is actually planned to be a visual exploration of Google Earth at the site of tonight's story. Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm Ray. Hi, I'm Melissa. Hello, this is Sheree Cardoza from Sulphur Springs, Texas. Permission to astonishing legends to use my voice. Now, 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 now. Galaxy-wide. Galaxy-wide. Compensation. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night.